Hello, and welcome to the Stanford University Press Podcast. My name is Chris Gondek, and today I'll be speaking with Mark Yost, the author of Varsity Green, a behind-the-scenes look at culture and corruption in college athletics. Mark Yost has written about the business of sports for the Wall Street Journal, Sports Business Journal, and other publications for more than 20 years. His work has also appeared in the New York Times, Sports Illustrated, and Smart Money. Mark Yost, thanks for taking time to talk to Stanford University Press today. Well, thanks for having me. You start the book, uh, Varsity Green, a behind-the-scenes look at the culture and corruption in college athletics, with the story of basketball coach Bob Huggins and his tenure at Kansas State University. So what was it about Bob Huggins and Kansas State that made it important enough for you to start your book with it? Well, I I think the Huggins story was interesting because it encompassed a lot of the elements that um, face college athletics today. First of all, we had a coach who was basically driven out of Cincinnati because of his recruiting practices. His, his last recruiting t- uh, class had a 0% graduation rate, so he was, he was pushed out of Cincinnati. And then he ends up at Kansas State, which is one of the most unlikeliest places he, he would end up because uh, the school is really known more for its academics than its athletics. But What's interesting about a person like Bob Huggins is that they not only can transform a basketball program, they can transform a university's brand. And what I mean by that is that uh, Cincinnati was consistently in the top five in terms of brand awareness and apparel sales for Nike when Huggins was the basketball coach there. When he went to Kansas State, they immediately got a all-school shoe and apparel contract from Nike, something they'd been trying to do for 10 years. Furthermore, it moved them uh, up in the brand awareness. They were selling t-shirts and hats outside of the Midwestern United States, and he got them into their first elite tournament that they'd been in 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 more than 20 years. Um, So uh, because it's all driven by money and Kansas State was willing to take the gamble on Bob Huggins, um, it paid off for them. They, they got some exposure, they got a good recruiting class, and um, they didn't get hurt in the process. And it, 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 but the whole example was really a good way to start the book because it showed uh, all of the issues that, that are at stake today in college athletics. But Bob Huggins is no longer the coach at Kansas State, is that right? No, he's he since moved on to uh, uh, West Virginia, which is his undergraduate alma mater. Um, he sort of did his penance so to speak, in Kansas or Kansas State and revived that program. They had one of the number one recruiting uh, classes in the country, and now he's moved on to West Virginia, and they're, they're building them a brand-new uh, $20 million practice facility. So uh, Bob Huggins has been uh, – he's taken his trip to Lourdes and been cleansed in the college basketball world and uh, moved on. But you mentioned that K-State, during his time there, not only got increased brand awareness, but didn't they also get some money out of increased television exposure? And isn't that, in a lot of ways, the name of the game for both college, uh, men's college football and men's college basketball is how often you get on television? Well, it is because um, uh, television uh, drives the revenue models now. The the CBS just paid $6.1 billion. That's with a B for the rights to March Madness. And yes, um, uh, Kansas State happens to be in the Big 12, which is a conference that shares revenues, proportion, television revenues proportionally. And what I mean by that is that the more t- you're on television, the, more, the bigger slice of, of the pie you get. They sell the sports package, they sell the, the um, conference as a whole, 
and then the way they divide the money up is, is by how much time you spend on television. So, yeah, they got a big shot in the arm from that. So all this money is really being driven by television, but the people they're putting on television are the, the athletes themselves. So what are they? Are they student athletes or are they the entertainment product, as someone in your book refers to them as? Well, they, they, they are the entertainment product, and that, and, and that might offend some people, but um, as I say in the book, I was extremely grateful um, to Bob Hughes from uh, uh, Kansas State because he, he said, to, I said, well, what's your job? He's the, he's the student academic advisor. I said, what's your job? And he said, well, my job is to make sure that the entertainment product goes to class. My job is to make sure that the entertainment product maintains their NCAA eligibility. And my job is to make sure that the entertainment product uh, doesn't get into trouble. And he admitted to me as much. He said, he said, that's how I stay sane. He says, he says, I know what this business is. I know it's about money. I know that, that these, these kids are, are, are students second and athletes first. And he said, but by the, having that, that sort of a candid view of the whole thing, he says, that's how I live with myself. And but so so as I say in the book, we should we should be thankful for Hughes because he's he's one of the few people out there really speaking the truth about what this is. And it's it's you know it's been often equated to a plantation system where the schools benefit all from all the all the financial rewards. And yeah, the students get a free education, but a lot of times they don't graduate. Uh, they don't go on to the pros, and they're essentially free labor that's offered to these schools for these billion-dollar programs. Uh, people pick up newspapers. They read about coaches moving from school to school, and a common refrain is, I don't get it. How is it that these coaches are making so much more money than either university professors or, in a lot of cases, university presidents, when in theory the university is there to serve education and not athletics? Your book goes into this and how coaches get paid. Could you spend some time maybe, uh, like, educating us on how a coach, a particularly high-level coach, is compensated at a university. Sure. Well, there's, there's, two, there's two key points to a coach's comp- compensation. Number one is, is pure supply and demand. Um, as much as this might annoy some people on the academic side of the university, the, the truth of the matter is there are a lot more people who can teach freshman English than people who can get a football team to a bowl game or a basketball team to the Final Four. It's just that simple, and so because of, of sheer supply and demand, they command more money. Now, the other the other part of that equation is that that these huge salaries we just um, saw the salary uh, eclipse of the co- football coach at Texas is good. Mac Brown is going to be getting five million dollars next year. That's a new record, beating the four million dollars a year that Alabama pays their football coach. That money, though, does not come from the University of Texas or the University of Alabama. It comes from these huge media contracts, television, radio, uh, and sneaker deals. Um, a, a lot of the money that comes in for, uh, from Nike and Adidas, that goes to pay the coach's salary. And there's also these very wealthy booster clubs. I mean, T. Boone Pickens set the record uh, for boosters with the single largest donation recently, $165 million to the football program. He's given hundreds of millions of other dollars. Uh, to, to, to other parts of the athletic program in the school. Um, Phil Knight uh, has given over $500 million to the University of Oregon. So uh, even though the coach may make $2 million a year, probably only about 200000 of that is coming out of the school's coffers. And there's university presidents and 
medical school faculty and law school faculty who make who do make more money than that. So um, it's not as it's not as bad as people think. These these pro, these salaries somewhat fund themselves. Uh, we're recording this interview at the end of December in 2009. We are smack in the middle of football bowl season. My jaw hit the ground when I read the chapter about bowls. Um, the fact that they're nonprofits and the fact that the people are the men primarily, almost exclusively, who run these bowls are pretty well compensated for a nonprofit. Well, pe- people are shocked by the fact that they're a nonprofit, but you know, when when you have a good lobbyist in, on Capitol Hill, which a lot of these. A lot of these bowl committees that you'll see on there, because because they're a nonprofit, they they have to publish their books, and you look at them, and one of their biggest expenses is um, lobbyists, either at the state capitol or at the federal capitol, and travel expenses for some of these presidents from these big universities. They they because when when the teams go to the bowl games, uh, the presidents come along. Uh, elite alumni come along, and, and this is all paid for um, out of the money that they get from the bowl committee. And um, uh, in terms of the lobbying, we just recently saw there's been accusations from the Arizona Republic, um, or more specifically from employees of the Fiesta Bowl, that these employees were encouraged to give money to certain political candidates who were sort of carrying the water, if you will, for the Fiesta Bowl, uh, and getting them certain favorable tax exemptions and, and things like that. And then the bowl committee was actually reimbursing the employees. So, in fact, the bowl committee was, in essence, according to the accusation, acting as a bundler, a, uh, a John Woo sort of figure who was the big Democratic campaign fundraiser who went to jail um, for bundling uh, campaign donations from Asian Americans in California. So, um, Again, they're just allegations. It's being investigated, but um, uh, people today should not be surprised that these bowls have lobbyists uh, that regularly lobby your state and federal government. Uh, I think it's fair to say that after reading the book, you probably saved some of your harshest criticism for the NCAA as an institution, which some people might find odd because a lot of times the NCAA is shown in the media as the sheriff. They're the people that are making the schools follow the rules. Um are we being spun by the NCAA? Is that an accurate representation of what they're doing? Well, they're a sheriff, but they're a very lazy sheriff. And, um, for instance, one of the things I talk about in the book is that um, the NCAA is headquartered in Indianapolis. Um, there is a law firm in Indianapolis that specializes in investigating NCAA violations, but in reality, the schools actually police themselves. When, when, when a school finds that they've uh, had a recruiting violation or uh, academic fraud or something, it, the, the investigation actually goes on within the school. The school hires their own private investigator, um, uh, sometimes even done by internal faculty or board members. And then the school not only reports on what they did wrong, uh, but they also recommend their own punishment. And the NCAA often says, oh, yeah, that's fine. We agree with that. And um, they have this law firm in, in Indianapolis that's sort of on retainer that reviews these things. And um, so, I mean, I think the misperception for people is that the NCAA is this huge organization with a huge investigative arm that's, that's, that's really judiciously watching over these academic programs. In reality, n- nothing could be further from the truth. It's, it's more often than not con- interconference rivals who find out about recruiting scandals or payola 
uh, scandals that blow the whistle on their competitors. It's not the, the watch doggedness of the NCAA. And I also got a sense that sometimes there's some pretty arbitrary rules that the NCAA has set down, which might not make a whole lot of sense, but can put a school in for some violations. Uh, I think I remember something about the University of Tennessee and their hostess program. Well, yes, they, um, they, <laughs> the University of Tennessee was, was in the news around Christmas time in, in 2009 because it was learned that, um, well, they have these hostesses. When recruits come to school, um, they don't get shown around by uh, the, the quarterback of the team or maybe the, the top biology professor or, or even the coach. I mean, they have meetings with those people, but the, the, the person who actually hosts them, uh, and these are mostly men, um, are good-looking young women, and they're called hostesses. And the amazing thing about this story with Tennessee is no one has a problem with these, seems to have a problem with these hostesses. Um, the problem was that the hostesses from Tennessee traveled to South Carolina to see the homecoming game of a prospective recruit, and they're not allowed to go, I think it's 100 miles beyond campus for these sort of recruiting trips. So, so that's the violation. They're not, they're not outraged that, that the universities are actually sort of prostituting these women uh, to entertain these men when they come to campus. Um, they were outraged that they went beyond the NCAA's made-up uh, radius of how far they could go from campus. Uh, so let's bring it back to the student-athletes themselves. A lot of the stuff in this book is really shocking, and certainly there's a ton of hypocrisy in college sports. But really... Are the student-athletes going in there with pretty good knowledge that, that I don't want to say that they're going to be exploited, but they, they're not really surprised at how the game works? I mean, is this, is this a situation where, although it's tragic that these young men are being exploited in this way, that they're not being exploited without their consent? I think what people will find most shocking in this, in this book and, and in my conclusions is that I'm not so much shocked by the behavior of the kids, because kids will be kids. I'm shocked by the behavior of the adults, the people who are supposed to be the grown-ups in this equation. And unfortunately, where the kids get cheated is that they're, they're passed along, um, they're, they're given a lot of help with their homework and, and able to do makeup tests and all that sort of thing. Uh, and they're passed along and they're told that they, have, they all have this dream of making it to the pros. What no one ever tells them is the odds that only 3% of the ki all the kids in the United States who play high school basketball get a Division I scholarship, and, and less than about 1% of those kids ever have any kind of a meaningful NBA career. It really is like winning the lottery. And so uh, th this, this, this holy grail of professional athletics is held out to these kids, and they sacrifice their entire lives to participate in this, and yes, they, they do it willingly, but no one ever explains the odds to them. No one's ever the grown-up to them, and, and it, that brings us back to Phil Hughes at Kansas State. He says, I understand these guys are the entertainment product, but if I can make them study, if I can make them learn something, then I, I've done something. I've made their lives a little bit better and maybe given them a chance because I know that these kids aren't going to go to the pros, the vast majority of them. They're going to end up with 80 credits, no degree, no more scholarship money, and they're going to go home to some sort of a dead-end job. So that, that's the problem with this whole system, is this false hope that playing college athletics leads to a professional career when statistically it's not often that true.
Mark Yost, the author of Varsity Green, a behind-the-scenes look at the culture and corruption in college athletics. Thanks for talking to the Stanford University Press podcast today. Well, thanks very much. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at www.sup.org. You can also become a fan of the Stanford University Press on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Copyright 2010, Stanford University Press. All rights reserved.